Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and I hope you're well. This 17th day of May in 2020, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, is life in many places beginning to move back towards some sense of normalcy. Not everywhere, but but many places are, are re, uh, relaxing the restrictions that we've been living under, and there's a lot more life going on out there than there has been. We had to run a couple of errands today and pick some things up, and it was nice to see people out and about. It was nice just to see people again, because we tend not to have seen very many people during this period of time, and so I'm hopeful that we're on the back side of this thing and hopeful that there won't be a sort of a second wave of this later in the year. So continue to pray for those who are suffering from um, from COVID-19 and for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones during this time as well. And so know that our prayers continue to be with you. There's, I'm making a change this week from my normal practice. It's not something that, that I'm doing out of order. Um, in the uh, Anglican world, during the period between Easter and Pentecost, the, the readings for the week, the lectionary, um, is gives you an option, and the option is to not have an Old Testament lesson. Now, normally, I mean, like 99 times out of 100, I, I continue reading from the Old Testament because I think it's important for Christians to understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. It's not good to leave aside the study of the Old Testament in favor of the New. There's so much richness brought to both the New Testament from the Old Testament and the Old Testament from the New Testament. So it's it's a worthy thing. It's an important thing um, to study that because the history of God's people, not only is church history important, it's the history of God's activity um, among His uh, those created in His image, those called according to His name beginning all the way back. And so it's important to know that because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. All the Everything in the Old Testament points forward to the coming into the world of Jesus. So it's important to know those things and to treasure those things. It's the world that Jesus inhabited was the world that was lit by the what we call the Old Testament, but the Torah. So it's important for us to know all that. And so normally I don't take the option of skipping the Old Testament, but today I am. And there's a reason for that, and it's it's partly to do at least with this whole issue of the pandemic. There's some things that, that I want to talk about, some stories from Jewish history that I want to talk about that most of you probably have never heard. So I want to talk about that in light of our situation today, because I think it has bearing on, on today and how we move forward from uh, this into the future, and, and maybe call a little bit for some um, change in the church and in the way that we, we treat one another and the way we think about others in our world. And so I'll give you the readings. The readings are, uh, first reading that, that we would use would be from Acts 17, and it's verses 22 to 33. And that is the story of Paul speaking in the Areopagus in um, Athens. He had, been, he had been speaking and telling about Jesus uh, in that place, which was a place where ideas were exchanged. He had been speaking there for a while, and, and so some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed there with him, and some said, what is he talking about? And they said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, 
maybe know what this new teaching you, that you're presenting. And so you're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. That's a critical question. What do these things mean? Not just what do you say, and I don't want to memorize this. I want to know what these things mean. And so from then, it, sa- it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so then Paul was invited to come and speak in the midst of the Areopagus as sort of a featured speaker might be one way of kind of looking at that. He was invited, and so he, was, he had an, uh, an imprimatur, a stamp of approval from the Epicureans and the Stoics, and so people came and they listened to him, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But the second reading is from 1 Peter 3, and it, the reading begins at verse 8 and then goes all the way through uh, verse 18. So that one, I want, but the part that I want to focus on there is this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. For on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I hope you know enough about the promise given to Abraham to hear that promise in there that they were called, he was called, we're called to bless in order that we might receive or obtain a blessing. And that was what they were called to do. That's what Abraham was called to do. He was called to bless those who blessed. And and his blessing would then convey something to the world. It wouldn't just be a nice thought. It would actually be to convey God's blessing to the people. And here Peter is arguing the same thing, that, that if we bless, then we'll receive blessing from that action. And then he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then he begins to go from there and talk about that that we should not return reviling for reviling. And our um, what we're supposed to do is imitate Jesus who suffered for doing good. The only one who's ever suffered for doing good because the rest of us are tainted by sin. And so good is a, a sort of a, um, a relative term when it applies to us, when it applies to Jesus, he was doing perfection. He was doing good because he was doing exactly God's work for the right reasons, to bring glory to the Father. And so ours was always going to be a little bit mixed because we're a mixed chalice. Um, And so that's the sort of the the focus for me is going to be sort of how do we interact with one another? There's important things, I think, to glean and learn from those first two passages. And then the gospel is from John 15. And it's the first eight verses. And Jesus is speaking metaphorically and says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruits. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, and for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But this is my, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So I kind of want to talk about what, what some of that means. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, what it means to abide in Jesus is to, to look like Jesus, to be like Jesus. You know, the Dalai Lama, not the Dalai is famed for having said that um, I don't think much of your Christians. I love your Christ, but your Christians are not very much like your Christ. And that's a, a horrible condemnation, right? I mean, it's a terrible thing to, to hear. Um, but, but then what do we do with that? How do we, how do we process that when somebody's an outsider looking at us and sees that? problem it was gandhi by the way not the dalai lama um but but how do we process that this person is attracted to our christ but not so much to christians because we're so unlike our christ the one that we're supposed to imitate the one in whom we're supposed to abide and if we abide in him then his attitudes and and his spirit flows through us and we begin to react to circumstances and people around us in the way that he did it it's hard sometimes to to see and hear my own reactions to things when I get upset when somebody comes against me me, when somebody causes me problems Um, it's a difficult thing and it's even more difficult when you speak against somebody that I care much about if you do that then you're probably not going to get the most Christ-like response from me I've certainly lived through that kind of messy situation in life in the career that I had before I went into ministry, but unfortunately saw some of those same things in ministry and have seen them over and over again. Sometimes it's directed against me, and sometimes worse for me is when it's directed against somebody that I care deeply about, especially when I feel like they're being mistreated or, or misrepresented and being sort of attacked as in a straw man kind of a sense. I uh, saw an article today, and that article said that evangelical Christians or American Christians are really not Christians at all. And the proof text of that was is that if you don't wear a bandana, you're a really bad Christian. In fact, you're probably not a Christian at all because you're just a selfish jerk if you don't wear some kind of a mask when you're out in public right now. Not sure that's a, a test Jesus would have applied. I'm pretty certain it's one that he wouldn't have approved of. And as I looked at more of that pastor's writings, what I saw was is that he actually hates the American church, hates the evangelical church in particular for abuses that he see or that are related to politics. But as I read through his writings, what I saw was mostly a lot of political rants. seems that he's way more invested in politics than most of the evangelicals I know um, and specializes in straw man arguments. And, and my response to that first is to be angry at him and to, to want to say that this guy's you know, he's so misguided in his attacks on other Christians that he's not a Christian at all. And did you hear that? See, I did to him what he did to me. And we've got to be careful about that. We've got to stay away from doing those things. And, and, and it's, it's for the reason that I just gave, that, that Christians are supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to abide in him and he's abiding in us. And that symbiotic relationship should produce kind of a different person. It should produce a person that's far more like him and far less like the man I was, the man I would be were it not for him. And so that's kind of where I want to lean with this. And I, and I want to draw a couple of examples from Jewish history. And this is first and early second century. 
Jewish history that I, that I want to mention. And the reason I kind of want to mention those right now is, is that right now in the Jewish calendar, they're in the same place we are. They're between Passover and Pentecost. Pentecost being the time when it's a it's an agrarian festival. It's a celebration of the the ingathering of the harvest. But but the other big thing that's celebrated now uh, and has been for for millennia um, is the giving of the law at Sinai. They say happened at Pentecost as well. And so you got these two enormous things. And so you're celebrating coming out of Passover. You're celebrating the the wonderful salvation of God in delivering His people from Egypt and bringing them out, bringing them ultimately into the land, the giving of the law, all those kinds of things are being celebrated and thought about that, that there would be no Jewish history were it not for God's salvific work in bringing his people out of Egypt from slavery under Pharaoh, the plagues, and then ultimately at the Red Sea, delivering his people from the Egyptians forever. And so it's a wonderful time, right? I mean, it should be a time of great celebration, but it's not actually. It, it, it's not been that in about 2,000 years since the time of the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. It's about 35 years-ish after the death of Jesus. <clears throat> so I want to talk about that for a second and talk about why that is, why it's not a time of great celebration uh, anymore, and why for two millennia it hasn't been a time of great celebration. So around the time of the destruction of the temple and, and thereafter for about 50 or 60 more years was a time of Jewish pride and detest for the Romans because the Romans are the one who destroyed the temple. And they didn't care much for Christians at that time either because they blamed the Christians for Rome taking action and destroying the temple. So it's, it's not a, a pretty time in relations between Christians and Judaism. And if you want to know what that looks like, just, well, read the book of Acts. Because Paul's under constant persecution wherever he goes. In fact, at the beginning of Acts, Paul's one of the people doing the persecution. And then he becomes the persecuted because, well, he's a turncoat and a traitor because he became one of them. Paul didn't seem to have that same attitude towards his own people. You can see that when he writes uh, in Romans. Yeah, in Romans, when he tells the Christians, who are Gentile Christians, that he's speaking to particularly in that place, that that they're they're only got in because of the disobedience of the the native vine, and they were just grafted in to God's purpose and plan. And so, how much greater will it be when God brings back the native fruit? And so Paul never rejected Judaism and, and never would have said anything remotely like that they weren't the heirs of the covenant, that it all comes through them. And Jesus being that which enables us to be grafted into that and become children of God. So Paul never had a hatred for the Jews. In fact, he always continued to try and preach the gospel to them. No matter how much they hated him, no matter how much they demanded and determined that Paul would die, largely for his conversion, because the charges they brought against him were bringing uncircumcised people into the temple, and it wasn't true at all. So even though the, God's people hated him, even though the Jews hated Paul, Paul never hated in return. He would get angry, certainly, in return, but he never hated in return. 
he continued to preach the gospel wherever he went. As long as he could preach it in the synagogue, he preached in the synagogue. But when they drove him out, they drove him out and he moved on. So it's around this same time, probably a little bit later than Paul, just a little bit, not a lot. And so there comes onto the scene a man called Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one of the great sages of Judaism. Um, he was responsible for an enormous amount of the Talmud, which is the oral Torah. So it's the oral law, the oral traditions of Judaism. Rabbi Akiva was greatly responsible for that. He got involved late in his life, um, late in his life because he died for this. He got involved with the Bar Kokhba revolt, which is in about 132. Bar Kokhba was a, a Jewish military leader who, who made his stand against Rome and lost. And because of his connection with Bar Kokhba and that revolt and his support for that revolt, Rabbi Akiva thought him to be the Messiah. Now you're talking about you know, almost 100 years after Jesus. Rabbi Akiva thought that, he, that Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. And he's this military figure that's going to come in and he's going to restore the kingdom and restore everything to, um, to Israel. And because of his support for that, the Romans tortured him to death. So I want to tell a story about Rabbi Akiva that, that informs this um, period of mourning when it should be celebration. And then there's a second person who was one of Rabbi Akiva's greatest disciples, and his name was uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yohai. And he wrote much of what we know today as the Zohar. So both these guys are, are sort of looked on in, in uh, mystical Judaism particularly as uh, really important figures. I mean, like one, two kind of guys in the mystical Jewish tradition. Rabbi Akiva, they think largely or partially at least responsible for the Kabbalah and Kabbalistic uh, stuff and, and Simon Bar Yohai uh, for the Zohar, the writings of the Zohar. So it's, it, they're really important figures, particularly in Orthodox Judaism and the Chabad movement. Um, they're, they're really, really important seminal figures because everything flows forward from them. So the, why is that important? Why, are, why is this, this time that should be a celebratory time um, muted and, and a time of kind of mourning? in Judaism, and, and it's for two reasons. One is the, a story that relates to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, it says that, that at one point in time, on one single day, a pandemic killed 24,000 of Rabbi Akiva's disciples. Now, Rabbi Akiva picked up and went forward from there and, and trained more disciples, but God took 24,000 of his disciples in a day, and there's an argument within Judaism about whether or not they were the only people who were killed, and, and it, the, the sages and the, the uh, leading scholars tend to lean towards th this was not a pandemic that killed um, millions of other people and also 24,000, 12,000 pairs of Rabbi Akiva's disciples. No, they, what they focus on is, no, this, is, this was just them. Those 24,000 were singled out. You're talking about the greatest rabbi around at that time, one of the, certainly the best known and, and to this day a revered figure within Judaism responsible for a fair bit of the Talmud. <clears throat> the, it's how do we understand our religion? How do we understand the laws of our religion? So it, it's much of Judaism relates to these two guys. And so 24,000 of Rabbi Akiva's disciples were killed in one day. And why is that? What happened? Why did the sages say that, that 24,000 were killed? And it was because they failed to respect one another.
they they let disagreement on theological matters trump their love for one another and their respect for one another and and god wouldn't allow the leaders to treat one another that way to treat one another without respect to let disagreements become something more than disagreement to make it personal to make it a place where you then began to attack and speak badly of others. I, I can do and will do uh, an extended teaching on leprosy that relates to this, actually, because the leprosy was caused by a sin. It's not what we think. It's not what you've ever been taught. It, it's something totally different. It, it's not the skin disease known as Hansen's disease today. That is not what leprosy is. I'll do a teaching on that in the very near future because it's an important thing for us to learn and to understand. But this this destruction of these 24,000 disciples of Rabbi Akiva relates to that sin of leprosy. It, it, this sin of disrespecting one another. God wouldn't allow these leaders, the people who were going to pass on Torah, because Torah might have been lost after the destruction of the temple. The, Torah was at risk. The learning and the study of Torah was at risk in, in Judaism, and, and God wouldn't allow those people, important as they were, students of the great master, to carry on that teaching with that attitude. And you know, Jesus kind of said something in there that at the end of that, did you notice it? That he says that, that if we do these things, if we teach what he teaches, if his spirit abides in us, then we will prove to be his disciples. It's important. It's important in a way that I don't think the church respects very much these days. I've, I've been involved in too many infighting situations in churches, and it, it just becomes ugly. It becomes something that, that is um, to be abhorred in the kingdom of God, frankly, that, that Christians who can't disagree without destroying one another's reputations over it, without anathematizing one another, without um, saying that guy's not a Christian. He, he teaches this. And, and if you're not teaching untruth, if you're not saying that the word of God is not the word of God, for instance, if you're not saying the truth of the word of God is not easy for all his people to discern, then if your teaching is different from mine on some things, if you see things differently from me, and one of the things, the benefits of, of Anglicanism is we have a creed. We have a creed that goes all the way back to the fourth century that the, the United Church agreed upon with the things the church believes. And in order to be a Christian, then these are the things you need to believe. As long as you're in that stream and not, not tearing down any of that, then we need to stop trying to destroy one another over these things. And I've seen too many lives destroyed, too many ministries destroyed over this very thing. I see too many YouTube channels that are devoted to trying to destroy other people. We have to be very, very careful about that because Peter says that we need to have unity. And that matters. That matters deeply. And the story about Rabbi Akiva's disciples tells me, I, I do believe 
that God still wanted that Torah teaching to persevere because it, it, it builds towards the revelation of Jesus. So it makes it possible within the Jewish community for people to reevaluate Jesus in light of the Torah teachings. And I think much of those teachings that have come from the sages and the mystics have pointed to Jesus. They didn't see him because they ruled him out as a first principle, but they point in that direction. So there's much for us to see based on those. So that's sort of Rabbi Akiva's story. So Rabbi Akiva's put to death, and then Shimon Bar Yohai takes over from him. And one of the great stories of Shimon Bar Yohai's life that's told in the Talmud as well is that because of his connection with Rabbi Akiva, the Romans sought to persecute him too, maybe put him to death. And so he went on the run for a season of time. He was in, um, he hid out in a, um, a place of learning. And then as they expanded the search, then they, he and his son, who was also a rabbi, left and they came from uh, that place of teaching and went to a cave. And so they went to, uh, to this cave and they hid in the cave for 12 years, as the story goes, and God made a carob tree with fruit on it to grow in the mouth of the cave and, and a stream ran across to provide them with water. And so for 12, day, 12 years, they, they, the two of them, did absolutely nothing except for study Torah because they had Torah with them. And so they spent all their lives doing nothing other than that. And they ate the carob and drank the water. And it was that important. And so then the story goes that Elijah himself came to them tidings of a change in the government of Rome and that they were to receive a reprieve and they left the cave. As they're going out of the cave, shortly thereafter, they pass a field and they're Jewish farmers toiling on the land. And they said, imagine people giving up the sacred study of Torah for worldly matters. As they said that, the produce of the field all went up in smoke. And then a heavenly voice came and said, have you come out to destroy my world? Go back to your cave. They returned to the cave for another 12 months and left it again only after they heard the same heavenly voice calling them to leave. This time they had a different way of looking at life. They saw a Jew carrying two bunches of myrtle rushing home on an afternoon and, and asked him, what he was going to do with the myrtle. And he said, it's to adorn my house in honor of the Shabbat, the man replied. And they asked, would not one bunch of myrtle be sufficient to fill your house with fragrance? The stranger replied, I'm taking two bunches, one for remember the Sabbath day and the other for keep the Shabbat day holy. Said Rabbi Shimon to his son, see how precious the precepts are to our brethren. They were changed in that. They, they first came out and, and saw everything else was nothing but straw when compared to what they had been doing, the study of Torah. They didn't have value for life. They didn't have value for those farmers working in the field. And if you have been shut up and shut out of your job for the last couple of months, you're understanding why it's important for us to work. It's part of what we were geared to do. But they see these people working and they, they think this is almost a blasphemy. Imagine people giving up the study of sacred Torah for worldly matters. And then God's, they, God had given them power, right? Because when they said that, the produce of the field went up in fire and smoke. And then God says, have you come out to destroy my world? Go back to your cave. And so what they learned was is that the world matters too. 
not just the study of Torah. And in fact, the Jewish understanding is, is the Torah is actually bl the blueprint for creation. It precedes the creation of the world. It was the blueprint. It was cre the world is created based on the blueprint in Torah for how things are supposed to work. And so then we messed up that blueprint with sin. And so when Paul goes to the Areopagus and he speaks to the people there, he's speaking to the world that God created. He's speaking to those who don't know the gospel, who don't know the truth of Jesus Christ. And when he goes, how does he go? Does he go the way too many Christians go nowadays or talk about the world and curse the world? No, he doesn't do that at all. Listen to this a little bit. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul had been raised to not care for Gentiles. To, there, there's no such thing as evangelism in that sense within Judaism. And certainly not at that time. It was a very insular thing. They hated much of the outside world. They had come to some an uneasy alliance in order to keep their land. But beyond that, didn't care didn't have any regard for the outside world. Paul was a man more fully converted in my mind than anybody ever has been. Paul is taken to the Areopagus, and instead of looking around and saying you're very religious, but you're terribly misguided because you're worshiping idols and all this nonsense, that's not what he says. No, he affirms you're searching for God because I see from all the things that you worship that you are a very religious people. You want to know something, but then you want to know so much and your minds are so open that that you can't even limit it to the pantheon, that you've got a niche here for an unknown God because you realize these others aren't fully satisfying, and so you leave open space for one more or maybe more. He says, I've come to tell you about that one. But let me tell you about that one. He's real, and he's personal. He's not stone, he's not gold, he's not whatever. He, no, he's not in temples made by man. No, he is near to each and every one of you. And then as he speaks, he quotes two different times from their poets. He's affirming parts of the culture that he can affirm. He's affirming those parts that, that have found truth which is that in him we live and move and have our being, and that we are his offspring. And Paul says, I come to tell you about him. And he's real. And he's personal. 
just like you're personal. You're created in his image. He doesn't need image out there. You don't need to create an image for this guy because you, me, that guy next to you, that woman on your other side, yep, y'all are all the image of the living God. He understood when Jesus said, God so loved the world. He didn't say God so loved his covenant people. No, he loved the world so much that he gave his son. And it was Paul's joy to be about the ministry of proclaiming that God and his son to the world. Paul learned to love the world. He learned to love the people that he was sort of trained to disregard. Maybe not hate, but not far from it. But then he also had to learn to love the people he was raised among because of their rejection of him. Paul didn't complain about that rejection. He didn't complain about that reviling. He knew he wanted to fill up in himself the sufferings of Jesus. He wasn't looking for an easy life. He knew that wasn't the way this was going to go. But, but he always called for unity among the brethren, unity around truth, always around truth. But he called for love. When he wrote that first epistle to the Corinthians, he called them to love. And he told them what love was told him what love looked like. He said it has a content. It's not some vague feeling. Nope. It's more than that. Just like John said, it's more than that. No, if you see your brother in need and you can fulfill that need, then you go out there and fulfill that need. That's love. To say, please be warm is not love. We're called to action. We're called to truth. Absolutely called to truth. Period. End of sentence. Full stop. We can't just go out and do good things without proclaiming Jesus Christ. Because if those things are not actually good things, if they don't contain the proclamation of Jesus. They're not done for the glory of God. So we as Christians need to do two things. We need to love one another and we need to love the world. We need to forbear with one another. We need to seek unity rather than division. Division's easy. Any idiot can do division. It's like criticism, right? Anybody can criticize. Doesn't take any genius at all to criticize. It takes some special genius to propose resolutions. Any idiot can see a problem takes a special kind of a person to find the way to deal with that problem. We need to deal with one another in a different way than we're accustomed to dealing with one another. We need to do it the way Jesus would do it. We need to love one another. We need to speak the truth in love. We need never to allow uh, untruth in, but we need to be gentle with one another. We need to listen to one another better. We need to hear. We need to sometimes drop our filters in order to hear what our brother or sister is saying to us. But those two stories in my mind have incredible power in that 24,000 lost in one day because they didn't love one another. And then with <coughs> Simon bar and his son, they didn't have any value for God's world, only God's word. Paul struck the balance, understood that those two things were equally important. If we're going to love God, then we got to love those created in his image. We specifically first have to love the brethren. And we have to love the brethren rather than seeking to be divided from the brethren. It's a shame and a sin to see division among God's people. But then we have to love the world because God loved the world enough to send his son to die for it. So there you have it. We've got one more week of uh, this season after Easter and then Pentecost. We'll be here in two weeks. Hopefully, by that point in time, on May the 31st, hopefully, most places will be begin 
will have moved further along this scale and we'll be getting closer and closer to normal. But when we come out into that brave new world, let's do so with those thoughts in mind. I hope you have a fantastic week. I'll be back with you later in the week um, to talk about some other things. Uh, but be blessed. And if there's anything that I can pray for for you, please don't hesitate to ask. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. And my name is, again, John Green.